Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we're finally here. We're back in Brooklyn. Yeah. And we were in Los Angeles. We were in L.A., like the Velvet Underground. We were there just last we week. Yeah. Actually, no, it was a couple weeks ago now. Now. Damn it. I don't know yeah. the timeline. Like the Velvet Underground, there for a little bit too long. Yes, we yeah. were there for a little bit too long. But I got to say, they have the best Mexican food. Yeah. As a person who grew up in Mexico, they mm-hmm. have the best Mexican food ever. Yeah. Nothing and controversial there. Great sushi. Oh, yeah. But what is up with these New Yorkers? I love Henry and Natalie, uh-huh. right? They are my sister wife and sister husband, Yeah, right? But the fact that they eat the pizza in front of us in L.A., L.A. pizza, pizza that's made in L.A., and they eat it and they say, mmm, that's good. <laughs> I am so insulted. I almost I almost just booked another flight out of there. I love you, Henry. I love did, Last podcast on the left, someplace underneath. Great, great shows, great perfect people. Perfect shows, perfect shows. But the pizza. <laughs> Why, why? Just don't just call it dough water with some flavoring on it. Okay, I, my John Stewart rant is over. I get it, and I agree wholeheartedly. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. My name's Marcus Parks, and this pizza snob next to me <laughs> is my wife. Hey, I like a good Elios. <laughs> I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And welcome to Velvet Underground Part 4. Yes, we're almost done. Getting there. Yes. We're getting there, but there's still a lot to go in this story. So the Velvet Underground's trip to Los Angeles that ended last week's episode was not quite the total bust that it seemed to be. See, as we said, most of the Velvet's debut album was recorded in their hometown in New York City. New York City! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so, no, it always gets stronger after a trip to L.A. It always yeah. does. Are they moving? No. No, we're not. <laughs> well, those recordings that they did in New York City are known as the Scepter Sessions. But astute listeners to the Velvet's debut will note that three of the songs in the album, I'm Waiting for the Man, Heroin and Sunday Morning, they all sound markedly better than the rest. They're more polished, they're clearer, they're tighter. For an example of how much clearer they sound, let's listen to a section of one of those three. Let's listen to kind of the last third of I'm Waiting for the Man. Baby, don't you holler, darling, don't you ball and shout. I'm feeling 
That song sounds fucking great, you know, and, yeah. and it's especially when you compare it to like All Tomorrow's Parties, which is my favorite song on the album, but All Tomorrow's Parties is uh, a mess, really. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 you're right. I guess I never think yeah, about it that it's, way. It's kind of a mess, but I'm waiting for the man. Ooh, shit, that's tight. It's mixed well, it's balanced, it's fucking great. Now, I'm Waiting for the Man and Heroin were originally recorded during the Scepter Sessions, but... They were re-recorded in Los Angeles during that failed Exploding Plastic Inevitable run with legendary producer Tom Wilson in a two-day studio session. See, the arrival of the Velvet Underground on MGM Verve coincided with the hiring of Tom Wilson to the label. Tom Wilson had just come from Columbia Records, and it was at Columbia that he'd met Norm Dolph, who, if you'll remember, was one of the guys who paid for the Scepter Sessions in New York City Along with Andy Warhol. Yeah, he uh, DJed sometimes at the Dom shows and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he was on the periphery of the exploding plastic inevitable scene. Now, Tom Wilson was one of the top producers of the 60s, a former jazz man <laughs> who'd worked with such legends as Sun Ra. But through circumstance, Wilson had found himself behind the board during the recordings of some of the most well-known folk records of the 60s. This was the man who produced the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Wow. This is the guy who produced yeah. Like a Rolling Stone. And this is, you know, and that's the same record that had blown Lou Reed's mind in college. And it was, in fact, Tom Wilson who first suggested to Bob Dylan that electric guitars might be a good idea to take his music to the next level. Judas is Tom Wilson's fault. <laughs> Judas! <laughs> well, good, good. Good for Tom Wilson. Good. good for Bob Dylan. Hell yeah. In addition, Tom Wilson also saved Simon and Garfunkel, <laughs> at least temporarily. It doesn't make it sound like he was their marriage counselor or something, but eh, kind of, sort of. They'd already called it quits, and they were living in different cities. But they decided to reunite when they heard Tom Wilson's mix of their song, The Sound of Silence. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence Restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stared By the flash of a neon light To split the night And touch the sound you hear that? He added that. Tom Wilson. You see, when Simon and Garfunkel's album tanked, it tanked spectacularly bad. <laughs> Somehow their song, Sound of Silence, started getting airplay on the radio, uh, like a lot in Florida, right? So Tom Wilson, totally on his own, went back to the studio. He remixed it. He used Bob Dylan's backing band, like, hey guys, come over here. And he made it like a more rocking sound. Oh, so he's the one that added that fucking sweet ass bass and the drums yes, and all that. Oh yes. wow, because that's what makes that song. Is yes. that like that bass that goes boo? 
Exactly. Mm. Like it, oh, like it gives that, that sinking feeling that you really need. That you like it brings you into the song. I didn't know that. Yeah. So eventually, it's like, hey guys, stop going to grad school because <laughs> your song's number one. <laughs> yeah, in Florida. Well, I mean, around the country. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it went to number one. That song went to number one all around the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, fu- that's fucking great. No, that's that really is what makes the song, is the fucking instrumentation. When you say Bob Dylan's backing band, do you mean the band? No, uh, not the band. Okay. This is pre-the band. Okay, pre-the band. Gotcha. Now, Tom Wilson eventually developed a taste for rock and roll. Not just because the songs were great, but also, quite possibly... Because there were a hell of a lot more lovely ladies in the rock scene than there were hanging around jazz shows. Okay. <laughs> Wilson... What do you imply? <laughs> Tom Wilson was a ladies' man, and the, there's not a whole lot of groupies showing up at the Blue Note, you know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. He was very suave. Yeah. So, when Tom Wilson was given the chance to move from Columbia to MGM Verve to produce rock albums... He took the gig. Oh, wait, he followed the money. He followed the money. Yeah, okay, that yeah. works. That, that is also a good reason. <laughs> that tracks, yeah. Now, by 1966, Wilson had already produced Freak Out, the Mothers of Invention debut album. So the Velvet Underground were a perfect fit. Plus, Wilson had seen them live and really dug the jazz vibe of a Velvet Underground show. So they went into the studio together and re-recorded Heroin and I'm Waiting for the Man. And they also did those doubled-up overdubs on All Tomorrow's Parties and the background vocals to Femme Fatale. She's a Femme Fatale. That one. (laughs) But while those tracks are the heart of the Velvet Underground and Nico, the debut album, Los Angeles was, as we said, still an overall disaster. And upon returning to New York City, they found that, from a live show perspective, leaving was the worst thing they could have done. Yeah. See, since the exploding plastic inevitable was such a big hit at the Dom, a guy named Charlie Rothschild rented it out while they were gone and turned it into a venue called the Balloon Farm. (laughs) That just sounds like an orphan just ruining someone's life. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to rent this and I'm going to call it the Balloon Farm. (laughs) And you're not going to get to play here anymore. He's got these big sacks with dollar signs on them. And to make matters worse, this was the same guy who had booked the Velvet Underground in all of their Los Angeles gigs. It was perfect. Step one, take them across <laughs> country. Step two, take over the lease of their venue. <laughs> well, that meant that the EPI no longer had a home, and therefore, neither did the Velvet Underground. Because at this time, the Velvets were inextricably linked to this massive, complicated, 13-person multimedia extravaganza. So after the Dom fell through, disaster began piling on disaster. And soon after their return to New York, Lou Reed came down with hepatitis again. Oh, right. Again, because that's what happens when you keep doing drugs. When you keep doing heroin specifically. Yes. And shooting crystal meth. And so Lou has to go back to the hospital and he's got to stay there for what? A six week course of treatment? But the EPI, the Exploding Plastic Inevitable, was booked to do a series of gigs in Chicago, which no one was in the mood to do. Yeah. So the Velvets and Andy Warhol went over to the hospital to see Lou and let him know, okay, we figured out how to do Chicago. John Cale is going to take over vocals and he's going to play a little keyboard. Mm-hmm. And Mo is going to switch to bass and rhythm guitar, you know, on just some songs here and there. Sure. And then while Sterling, he's going to stay at lead guitar. And you're not going to believe it, but filling in on drums is our favorite enlightened being, <laughs> Angus McLeese. Welcome back, Angus. <laughs> the original drummer for the Velvet Underground who quit right before their first paying gig because that would undervalue that art that is 
sound. <laughs> so, okay. So Lou is sitting there in the hospital bed saying, all right, I suppose the show must go on. For sure. Right. But remember, Angus, you're only coming back for that week in Chicago. You are on a temporary basis. You got that, guys? Right, Andy? Right? Okay. And then Andy's like, oh, actually, I'm, I'm not going. I'm busy. <laughs> I'm Andy Warhol. I have stuff to do. Yeah. And Nico wasn't going to Chicago either because she had a modeling job in Ibiza, to which Lou was like, yeah, that's that's fine. Who gives a shit what <laughs> yeah, Nico does? Exactly. Yeah. But that means John Cale will be leading the band. Uh, and Lou's like, okay, fine, just call me from the road. <laughs> Sitting there all jealous and awkward. Let me know how badly it goes. So so John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Mo Tucker, and Angus McLeese, mm-hmm. and the rest of the EPI factory dancers and hangers-on and mm-hmm. all those people, they played inside an old church at a venue called Poor Richards in Chicago during the record hottest temperatures of the year. That was the summer of 1966. It was over 100 degrees there with no air conditioning. But the band still, they still worked together really well. Like they pulled out amazing performances. And you know what? Some of the audience didn't leave. And some of the reviews weren't bad. So, that, I mean, honestly, that was an improvement. Well, no, it, it, well, I mean, and I could see that happening because, you know, Lou Reed, as wonderful as he is, as great as he is, John Cale has a much more conventionally pleasing voice. Much more than yes. Lou Reed does. Oh, yeah. No, it's beautiful. And his voice is also much more in tune with the 60s. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know what? I can see that from John fo- Cale's uh, solo album, yeah. which was in the 70s. Yeah. Or just listen to his that version of uh, Venus and Furs he did. That is so um, that, that is so very, very, very folky. Uh, it's it's he, he's got a, a style that is of the time, not like Lou Reed. Well, he's, you know, a European fairy gnome. He's, <laughs> he sounds magical, you know? He does. And, and so everyone was having a great time in Chicago. They're still improvising a lot of their songs on stage. You know, they like to play all their songs differently, actually. They like to switch it up so that they don't get tired of the same thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. they play Venus and Fur, slower, faster, whatever, longer, louder, softer. It doesn't matter because every set was meant to feel different anyway. Yeah. So since they did so well, they were actually asked to stay another week in Chicago, which they did, and they did it happily because even the oppressive heat in an unventilated church venue wasn't as bad as the uptight and anxious atmosphere that Lou Reed would sometimes bring to the show, <laughs> right? Oh, and speaking of which... Uh, did anyone remember to call Lou at the hospital? <laughs> no? Okay. Which no one did. No. And I'm sure that drove Lou crazy. Yeah. Because he was very much into establishing that he was the leader of this band. And the band going off without him and doing pretty well, that, that kind of sucked. Yeah. And then he got even worse news. Lou's favorite college professor, Delmore Schwartz, died. Yeah. So Delmore, who we know from episode one, was still deep in alcoholism and, and abusing pills. And he had become increasingly paranoid in the last two years of his life. It was so bad that Delmore had pushed everyone out of his life because of all of that. Yeah. And including Lou, actually, who he refused to see one time because he was convinced Lou was a spy for the CIA. Yeah. And so by the time Delmore Schwartz was found dead of a heart attack in his hotel, it took Two days for someone to claim his body at the morgue. Yeah. No one even noticed he was gone. Yeah. For a long, for a while. They didn't recognize him. Yeah. He was a transient pretty much. At that that point, he was pretty much transient. And when Lou heard of the news from Gerald Malanga, Lou said, you know, hand me my clothes. We're going to Delmore's funeral. And they did. Even though Lou still had like three more weeks left in that six week course 
treatment thing that he had to do in the hospital, he had to go pay his respects to to his first mentor. Yeah. Really. And since the Velvet Underground debut album hadn't come out yet, Delmore Schwartz never got to hear the song the band wrote as a tribute to him. And that song is called European Sun. This one. You killed your European son. You spit on those under 21. But now your blue cars are gone. You better sit so long. Hey, hey, bye, bye, bye. You made your wallpapers green. You want to make love to the scene. Your European sun is gone. You better sit so long. Your clouds treat you goodbye. You hear the chair scraping and then the glass breaking yeah. and everything that? Yeah, that's when the song gets fucking rolling. Yeah, that, but that's John Cage. That's, yeah. that's an influence of John Cage. And remember, we were talking about the, the bathtub with the radio and all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like suicide. <laughs> suicide the band or suicide the action? The action. Okay, gotcha. Yes. We got, I mean, in this show, we got to fucking make a delineation. It could be a little bit of everything. <laughs> So once Lou was fully recovered from hepatitis, MGM Verve decided to release a single to radio stations only. And since Tom Wilson had come to think that Nico was the star of the show, they chose two of her three Velvet Underground songs as the A-side and the B-side. Side A was All Tomorrow's Parties, and B was I'll Be Your Mirror, which honestly I think is kind of the only half-assed track on the album. That's just me. I love me. it. I love it. <laughs> But the single did not go to stores. Instead, it was only sent to radio stations to see if the song got played. And unfortunately, it was only played sparingly. And even then, it was just so DJs could make fun of it. Yeah, bad, no, that's true. Bad jokes like playing all tomorrow's parties and then coming back and saying, well, that was the Velvet Underground. Let's let's hope they stay underground, if you know what I mean. Coming oh, up next, God. we got Kiss. Or, no, it wouldn't be 1966. No, it would not have been Kiss no, yet. No, no, no. <laughs> they were in grade school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it was just those jokes uh, of like, almost like a Dr. Demento type thing. <laughs> it did not get any respect whatsoever. Now, by this point, fall of 1966, the album still hadn't been released, partly because Tom Wilson felt that it wasn't quite done. See, as I said, Tom was a big Nico fan, and he requested that there be at least one more Nico track on the album that might gain some traction on the radio. So Lou Reed began writing a song in the early hours of a Sunday morning hmm. as he was returning from a party with Sterling and John. And he further shaped it when Andy suggested that the song focus on paranoia, adding the line, watch out, the world's behind you, which is, if you put it in that context, instead of watch out, it's watch <laughs> out, the world's behind you, man. <laughs> and when they played this song live, Prior to its recording, Nico was the one behind the microphone, as per Tom Wilson's request. But when the band finally got into the studio to record it, Lou announced that he was going to sing it because it was his song and he wanted the single. She had to sing backup. Yeah. He made her sing backup. <laughs> 
After a huge blowout with manager Paul Morrissey and the band, everyone gave Lou what he wanted, and Lou ended up singing the song. Interestingly, though, in the midst of all this fussing and a feuding, John Cale noticed a miniature xylophone in the studio. And on a spur of the moment, John Cale wrote a comforting little melody, which eventually became the opening notes to the Velvet Underground and Nico. The song we're talking about is, of course, Sunday Morning. Sunday morning brings the dawn It's just a restless feeling by my side Early dawn Sunday morning It's just the wasted years so close behind Watch out, the world's behind you There's always someone around you who will call It's nothing at all Okay, so the Velvet Underground haven't been playing many gigs right now. If any, actually, since Lou, you know, remember Lou Reed got sick with hepatitis again Mm -hmm. back in June. But now it's fall and they're ready to get back out there and continue their performative experience that is the EPI. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Except now now things are different, though, because there's new people around that Gerard or Andy had brought in, like Eric Emerson, a mm-hmm. young guy who's just started dating Nico. And then there's Susan Bottomley, a.k.a. International Velvet. I love these James <laughs> Bond names. She, she was actually sleeping with Lou uh, at the time, a little bit on the side. That's until Lou found Susan and John Cale in bed together one day, and that really pissed off Lou. <clears throat> and, then, and then Gerard, who apparently was also dating her too, was also <laughs> pissed, but not about that. He was annoyed that all these new people he brought in to dance were not going along with his, with his own you know, choreography. With his wit dance, yes. though it wasn't meshing, yeah. So he wrote an angry note to Andy accusing him of allowing outside elements to interfere with my dance routines. <laughs> You know, I mean, they were very good. I'm going to yeah. give them that. Yeah, they look cool. And meanwhile, Andy is too busy to deal with this shit right now. His interest in the band has been like waning for some time anyways. He's working on a new movie called Chelsea Girls, mm-hmm. which becomes an underground hit that will soon get a theatrical release at a, like major theaters. Yeah. And it got a lot of attention. And, and so did Nico because she was in it. So now she's getting reporters coming up. At her and like trying to interview her and stepping over Lou Reed to take her picture. Yeah. While Lou is practically yelling like, she's not really in the band. <laughs> she just kind of shows up sometimes. It's you called know? the Velvet Underground and Nico. And Nico. She doesn't write the songs. <laughs> I write the songs. <laughs> and not to mention the amount, the large amount of amphetamines, cocaine and heroin that many of them are partaking in right now. Mm-hmm. People are getting a little bit tense in close quarters, just sitting in a bus going from city to city. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, sometimes it's not even a bus. Sometimes they're fucking strapping a disco ball to a station wagon and seeing how far they get. That's such a Simpsons episode. <laughs> 
but yes. No, the UPI, it's 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 suffering from uh, what we call murder fist syndrome. Uh, too many members. <laughs> too many members. Too many members to make any money or to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> now, just as the cracks were widening with Andy, and just as the friction was increasing internally, the Velvet's debut album was finally released on March 12, 1967, Woo-hoo! nearly a year after the first Scepter Sessions in New York City. That's an insane turnaround uh, for an, a mid-60s album. A year between recording and release? It's unheard of. It's ridiculous. Now, the legend of this album is that while it's been seen as an essential part of any record collection since at least the 80s, it sold fuck all when it was first released. And while that is true... It wasn't necessarily because the music was so far out there. See, part of the reason why MGM was so keen to release an album by the Velvet Underground in the first place was because it came with the promise of an album cover designed by Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol did indeed design one of the most iconic album covers ever, adorning the Velvet's debut with a big yellow banana next to his own signature, writ large. But while that sounds simple enough... Andy's overall idea is where the problems began. See, the banana wasn't just a banana. It's not a banana. It's, it's not a real banana. <laughs> no, they didn't just paste a fucking banana to every single cover. But damn near, at the tip top of the fruit were instructions that said, peel slowly and see. And when you did peel, you found that the yellow banana was a sticker. You see, it's a sticker. It's not a banana. <laughs> and underneath was a big slab of pink banana meat. I, wh- I get it. <laughs> we all get it. <laughs> oh, Andy. Oh, Andy, you're a scamp. Yeah. But while this was a cool gimmick, it was a pain in the ass to manufacture, and a whole new apparatus had to be constructed just to affix the banana sticker to the front of the gatefold LP cover. And even then, a gatefold LP cover was a new thing, relatively. Only a couple of bands had done it at that point. It really sped up the Cold War, though. <laughs> Apparently, they had a lot of people on this. Furthermore, once the album did hit stores, there was confusion as to whose album it actually was, because Andy's name was so prominent on the cover. I think you mentioned this a little bit yeah. last episode. Is he the lead guitarist? Yeah, is he singing? Is he playing guitar? Is he just softly speaking? Is he just saying how great everything is over and over again? It's great. It's great. It's great. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's like number eight, number eight. But in the end, it wasn't the banana sticker or the confusing cover that ended up sabotaging the release of the Velvet's debut. That didn't help, but it wasn't the biggest factor. Instead... It was the previously mentioned Andy Warhol hanger-on named Eric Emerson. Oh, I know. Poor Eric. Uh, he goes down in history this way. Really, really, he didn't really mean it. Okay, so on the back of the cover uh, of the album, there's, there's a picture of the band, right? They're mm-hmm. playing an EPI show. And behind the band, because remember, they're, they're showing Andy Warhol movies while they play. So, so behind the band, there is a, a still photo of Eric Emerson in a scene from Chelsea Girls. Mm-hmm. So, you know, his face is on the album. So Eric, at this point, had already ended things with Nico a little while back. Uh, He probably dated 10 other factory people at this point. I mean, he was a stud. Yeah. But he was also deep into drugs. And he needed money for a lawyer to fight a drug possession charge. Or, I heard, also to just score some more drugs. Yeah. So he thought, maybe both. (laughs) I think both. I think both is most likely. So he thought it'd be a good idea to sue MGM for unsolicited use of his image for some cash. But instead of paying Eric out... 
MGM just immediately pulled the album off the shelves for a few weeks and airbrushed his face out of it. Or some of them had like a really big, ugly black sticker, like just pasted on it. Yeah, you know, the one that I have is the sticker one. Right. I, I have an original pressing. I'm not going to fucking gab too much. But yeah, one of the ones I have is the sticker. So they had to pull all of these out of the shelves. Like they weren't selling for weeks. And this is during a very important time to have it out. This is just, it was just starting to chart on a cash box, yes. which was one of the three big music magazines at the time, along with Billboard and Record World, I think. And then it got delayed. And then some record stores just didn't get any more albums back. Mm -hmm. So the album didn't gain any traction and lots of potential sales were lost because of that. And so their album had come and gone and no one really cared. No, they really didn't. And, you know, it's funny that the cover without like the Eric Emerson, it's known as the Eric Emerson cover now uh, <laughs> well, amongst you know. uh, amongst collectors. Uh, but a fucking copy of the Eric Emerson, the one that still has Emer- Eric Emerson's uh, photo on it and the banana sticker still on the cover just sold on Discogs for nine thousand dollars. What? crazy that's a lot (laughs) it's It's too much it's insane what are you gonna do with that (laughs) what do you guys do with this shit hop hop hooray nordstrom rack's got sweet deals on everything easter which is sunday march 31st get to nordstrom rack now and save on kate spade new york two-faced steve madden calvin klein and more from just 30 dollars Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, before the album had been pulled from the shelves, it was starting to make some inroads in certain charts, like I said, on Cashbox. But after that kerfuffle, sales turned dismal and the reviews were lukewarm at best. And the band also certainly wasn't helped by MGM Verve's laughably lame promotional materials. Here's an example of copy from a print ad that they put out for the Velvet Underground and Nico. And try not to let your fucking cringe buttons get too fucking hard-pressed on this (laughs) one, because this is awful. What happens when the daddy of pop art goes pop music? The most underground album of all. It's Andy Warhol's hip new trip to the current subterranean scene. Sorry, no home movies. But the album does feature Andy's Velvet Underground. They play funny instruments. <laughs> Plus, this year's pop girl, Nico. She sings groovy. <laughs> Plus, an actual Warhol banana on the front cover. Don't smoke it. Peel it. The Velvet Underground, produced by Andy Warhol, is now available at record stores across the country. Just bring your own plain brown wrapper. I still don't know what they're selling. (laughs) You're right. It doesn't make any sense. Am I getting Andy Warhol's penis? (laughs) Some claim that MGM didn't get the album, but I don't think that's the truth. More likely, and this is also talked a little bit in the 33 and a third uh, for the Velvet Underground and Nico. MGM had absolutely no idea how to market a band seemingly made up of a junkie speed freak, a Welshman dressed like a disco wizard, an androgynous drummer standing behind her drum kit, and a six-foot-tall German vampire. I love it. (laughs) 
I, I love that they're just an odd pack together, like like, like those uh, Pixar movies, Ice Age. It's like that. Yeah, Motley someone make Crew. a meme. <laughs> now there's no way to know. Well, see, had this album come out in 1966, the actual year that it was recorded, the Velvet Underground might have been at the center of a bad press firestorm concerning the drug content in their lyrics. Now, there's no way to know, but this might have been great for the Velvets had it happened. But as we know with the Ramones and the bad press leak over they got from the Sex Pistols, it could have gone either way. Yeah. But instead of the Velvet Underground starting the fire, the anti-drug Führer was owned by a song whose lyrics weren't even about drugs. This song gained attention just because it had the word high in the title. And that's a far cry from heroin, it's my wife, and it's my life. But even so, people freaked out about Eight Miles High by the Birds. Eight miles high And when you touch down You'll find that it's stranger than no I mean, it sounds like drugs. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. All I can think of are like 80s cartoons and a, and a giant caterpillar just smoking an out of an opium thing. <laughs> yeah. It's We've seen the same cartoon. We have absolutely seen the same cartoon. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it sounds like drugs. It sounds like doing drugs. I can see why it kind of freaked people out and it says hi. It just, it sounds so otherworldly. It's, it's like, I mean, remember, this is like fucking 10 years after Elvis. 11, maybe 12, this is 11 years after Elvis. Uh, so, people are still freaking out about this shit. But, <laughs> when will it end? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Never. Wonderful. It will never end. But I mean, but it's great to think of like where we are now. Like now we got a gay dude lap dancing with Satan. I like, love that. And that's fucking awesome. I mean, the song's just okay. No, I don't but really. I love the video. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't really like the music very much. But man, what that what fucking Lil Nas X is doing for fucking just the the whole culture is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> but since something as tame as Eight Miles High was able to cause an uproar, it's likely the MGM Verve didn't want to take a chance on. When the blood begins to flow and shoots out the dropper's neck. Okay, now you're just nitpicking. All right? Okay? Because, yes, they, they definitely probably didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out the Velvet Underground. Yeah. That's true. And also, remember, they had already signed Frank Zappa. Remember their arch nemesis saying, mm. oh, you again? That guy? <laughs> Every time they see him, like, oh, it's you. <laughs> Frank Zappa. And then, of course, his manager, Herb Cohen, uh, whose nefarious task was to make sure the Mothers of Invention album came out first before the Velvet Underground. Uh-huh. Which is a conspiracy. <laughs> Although, um, actually, the truth is, is that they were already signed and they recorded earlier. Yeah. But, you know, the Velvets thought, ooh, conspiracy. Yeah, they're headed the, out against us. Well, the Velvets are on speed. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They're hiding under the chairs. It's like, I think Frank is, is outside. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, 
you know what? The Velvets, they did take it personally because, remember, they hated Frank Zappa. Yeah. They hated Frank Zappa until the 90s. Yeah. It's just like, what happens? Okay. <laughs> well, there, there was a little of a detente during the recording of the next album. Oh, yes, yes, there was. <laughs> yes. And maybe it's also the fact that uh, their band manager, Andy Warhol, or even Paul Morrissey, too, none of them knew this record business at all. No. Like, Andy's a famous artist, and Paul is a filmmaker who knows about lighting and stuff. It just seems that everyone was incredibly naive about what to expect. And it wasn't even about what to expect. It's like the sorts of problems that the Velvet Underground ran into, like the, the everything about, you know, the record pressing and it taking a year to get out. If they would have had a real rock and roll manager, that album would have been out in four months. Yeah, it, it comes out yesterday. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that, and, and the and, slamming phones and Yeah, stuff. yeah. Instead of like, oh, it's going to be out when? Great, whatever. That's cool. Just whenever it happens, let me know. Yeah, and the Velvets felt like shit because, I mean, the mothers, you know, and, and other bands who had opened for them already had their album out and they already had a lot of promotion and everyone's talking about them. And, and what about the Velvet Underground? Nothing. Nothing. Or very little. Very little. Very, very little. And what really pissed off the Velvets more than anything is that they received virtually no radio play in their hometown in New York City. It was almost a fucking blackout. And that should have been the one place that was going to support them. So to answer this affront, the Velvets boycotted playing New York City for three years and played one of their last gigs in the city in April of 1967 at a place called the Gymnasium. Yeah, the gymnasium. I, I love that because it was an actual gym. <laughs> so even though Andy, he, he doesn't have like the recording industry know-how, you know, he did find him a place in the Upper East Side that was a real gym. You know, it had weights and barbells and, and, and parallel bars and trampolines. Yeah. He's like, it would be fun for them to just play with it, the audience and stuff. <laughs> and of course, there's a balcony at the end, you know, to project all the films and lighting and everything, everything EPI again. Uh, and they did a bunch of shows there from late March to most of April of 1960. And it was fine. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a good time, especially with the gym's trampolines where where people would jump from the balcony and onto the trampoline and then dive into the crowd. Uh, That's a good time. That's great. Yes. But at that point, it was pretty clear that the enthusiasm for the EPI shows was fading and the crowds weren't as big as before. Mm -hmm. Like maybe 30 people would show up instead. It wasn't so exciting. Yeah. And uh, that affected the band and the dancers as well. They, They kind of felt like. Ah, we're kind of tired of this. Yeah, what are we doing here? So right after the Velvet Underground's album was released, Nico began work on her first solo album. This was, from the perspective of my own taste, this is just me, it was one of the most beautiful albums of the late 60s. Chelsea Girl. I seem to think about 
How all the changes came about my way And I wonder if I'd see another And despite the sometimes acrimonious relationship the Velvets had with Nico, three out of the four band members still contributed heavily to the album, and members of the band wrote half the songs on Chelsea Girl. The only member of the Velvets not included in this album was Mo Tucker, but that's just because Tom Wilson, acting as producer, didn't want any drums. Just wanted a lot of flute. <laughs> he was in a flute mood. A lot of flute and a lot of strings, you know, which is partly, you know, what I love about the album, the flute, the strings and all that. They weren't supposed to be on there. Nico did not like that. She actually started crying when she heard the flute. She thought that Tom Wilson had absolutely ruined the album. And I think it's what makes the album. I think it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, the most well-known songs in the albums, These Days and The Fairest of the Seasons, they were both written by singer-songwriter Jackson Brown, who insanely was still a teenager when he wrote both of them. He was also, of course, sleeping with Nico at the time. Okay, he was 18. <laughs> he wrote those songs when he was 16. He was 18 when he was sleeping with Nico. I had to look it up. And Nico was 27, 28. Okay. There you go. Not the worst. So, so Not here's the worst. here's the story, right? So a few months before Nico recorded Chelsea Girl, she was looking for work and, you know, kind of wanted to stretch out and do her own thing. So Paul Morrissey set up a bunch of gigs for her to sing at the bar venue downstairs from the balloon farm. Yeah. I guess Nico can come. She's fine. I gotta block out the sun. <laughs> Louie can't come, though. No, no Louie. <laughs> Okay, I can't. If I say that word again, <laughs> the, the whole show derails. So, so she got a bunch of gigs at this one place <laughs> that used to be called the Dump. All right, and remember, Nico doesn't know how to play any instruments, and she needs a backing band or at least a guitarist to play the songs. You know, so that she knows how to sing. Mm -hmm. So she's like, "Hey, Lou." Oh, no? Okay. All right, no. All right, how about, no, no? Okay, Lou's like, no, I don't want the Velvets playing her solo shows because it was just not good for the group's image. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or also because Lou was, a, I think Lou was a little salty that uh, John Cale and Nico had a fling yeah. around this time. Very uh, salty. They moved in together and they spent some time alone, which I'm sure didn't help some band relations. But then again, John Cale said that living with Nico, that lasted about a week and he was like, Let's just be friends. Yeah. Let's be friends. <laughs> so Nico couldn't use the band, but they did come to a compromise. The Velvets were going to put their songs on tape so she can sing along to it. Mm. All right? Like a karaoke thing. It's not a good idea. So Nico goes on stage. <laughs> wait, wait. There is no stage, actually, at yeah. this place. So uh, Paul actually got her like a little platform that he put at the end of the bar so she could sit on it mm -hmm. while people are, are, you know, ordering drinks next to her, oh. arguing over the bill and creepy guys leering at her. Yeah. So there she is. At the end of the bar, with this huge monstrous tape recording device next to her, where she has to bend down and push play, and then back up on the platform again to sing a song, and then as soon as that song ends, she's got to bend down really fast to press stop right before the next song starts to give a moment for applause. Oh. And then really, there's just a couple people in the back. You know, it's like, who's from out of town? <laughs> it was like it was like the opposite of Ramada and Hot Shots. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that scene? No, I don't. Someday he will come along. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that from Top Gun? I said 
Hot Shots. Okay, Hot Shots. Top of Gun is the serious movie, Marcus. <laughs> and Hot Shots is obviously the satire. Obviously. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I, I got my airplane movies mixed up. Yes, you did. <laughs> so Nico called the entire experience humiliating yeah. at first. And Paul described it as excruciating. Yeah. And, uh, and after just a couple of nights, he just couldn't bear it anymore. So he begged Sterling, just come play for Nico, please. And Sterling finally relented and he did. But but that still wasn't enough of a draw. So they got their friend, uh, Danny Fields. Danny says. Hey, Danny says. Yes, uh, he was working. Gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> He's working at Electra Records. Remember, this is right before he gets fired for making a joke and getting punched by the VP of Electra. <laughs> anyway, check out season one, Stooges episodes. Yeah. <clears throat> so Danny Fields is their friend and he's working at Electra. So he suggests using a young new recording artist named Tim Buckley. Ah. Yes. To share the bill with Nico. So he will play his own set and then accompany her on guitar for her because he was being really nice. Yeah. And while Nico and Tim played on their little stage platform thing, there was a young songwriter named Jackson Brown mm-hmm. sitting right in front of them, watching them every night. And him and Allen Ginsberg, actually, um, <laughs> he was at the table over. He was oddly obsessed with Nico for a little while. I get it. So Paul saw Jackson Brown and he said, OK, can you play guitar? And Jackson's like, yeah, I'm pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I'm going to be Jackson Brown in a couple years. Yes. Actually, in a couple months, really. <laughs> yeah. And get on Electra. So, okay. So, Paul was like, Nico, this is Jackson Brown. Nico, okay, now you guys are together now. Oh, this is a thing. Like, mm-hmm. every, like, you know, Paul was like the one who was friend zone forever. Yeah. So, Jackson Brown and Nico got together. He wrote her a couple of songs for her album, Chelsea Girl. And so did John Cale and Lou Reed, too. He actually came up and he uh, played a little bit. So, you know what? He came around. He really did. Yeah. 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 And that's, yeah. Nico's first album, it's a, it's totally a covers album. Her second album is her songs, uh, encouraged by John Cale, the marble indexed. Uh, you need to listen, let's do it once. Yeah. That's all I, it's kind of like a, what is it? That movie irreversible. You watch it once. Oh man. And you don't need to watch it we again. We talked about this. <laughs> that's how the marble index is like, it's a, oh, it's a gut wrenching album, Like, yeah. but it's fucking gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. You listen to it once. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, Chelsea Girl did even worse than The Velvet Underground and Nico when it was released that October. And the album was largely forgotten until, of course, Wes Anderson resurrected these days in the fairest of the seasons for the Royal Tenenbaum soundtrack. That's how all of us fucking heard Nico. Yeah. Every single one of us. And say what you want about, you know, Wes Anderson. He's got fucking great music taste. He does. He really does. Yeah. He knows a thing or two. Oh, yeah. And Rushmore. Holds up. Totally holds up. Yo, absolutely. I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, totally holds up. Now, the Velvet's relationship with Andy Warhol, and particularly Lou Reed's relationship with Andy Warhol, it had been steadily deteriorating ever since the Los Angeles trip. To it, it was around the release of the Velvet's debut album that Lou began referring to Andy as Drella, which was a portmanteau of Cinderella and Dracula. Andy did not like it. <laughs> Think you uh, owned up to it later. <laughs> yeah, songs for Drella. Well, that was unfortunately much later. Much, much later. But really, Andy's final blow off of the Velvets came when he went to Cannes and left the Velvet Underground at home. They take everything personally. <laughs> everything personally. So Andy was invited to screen his movie Chelsea Girl, right, in France at the prestigious Cannes. Mm. I asked you the other day, it's why is it spelled 
canned because it's, it's, it's a French word. Okay, so <laughs> yes, it's can like C A N can. That's yeah. how you you say. It. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the movie it's not canis. I cans <laughs> canes. Okay, so the movie Chelsea Girl. It wasn't competing for a prize or anything like that, but it was still great news to just have it screened there. Big deal. Obviously, it's a big promotion. So Andy brought along his factory people. Gerald Malanga, Nico, Susan Bottomley, Eric Emerson. Yeah, you can see why the Velvets kind of felt a little left out. Mm -hmm. You know, you leave us here and you bring Eric, the guy who messed up our debut album. Yeah. Right? And also, didn't Eric sue Andy for also not getting paid the role of Chelsea Girls? I think he just said, like, yeah, yeah, don't don't take it personally. I don't take it personally. Who cares? (laughs) It's come on. Let's go. And, And yeah, Andy's like, we settled it. I'm paying him with a trip to Europe. <laughs> like most of the cast here, it's the best I can do. Yeah. Okay, so the band wasn't happy with that anyway, especially since they've been getting offers to tour Europe. You know, Barbara Rubin saying, like, I can get you Albert Hall in London and in their shows in Paris too. And even Andy talked about getting them to Europe to reporters there. But those plans just never got off the ground. Yeah. And since Nico was also in the movie, she got to go to France as well. But when she flew back to America and decided to go join the Velvet Underground in Boston, who are playing at this new hip place called the Boston Tea Party, Mm -hmm. Lou refused to let Nico on stage. He said, oh, no, we already did all the songs you could have done. I'm sorry. And I'm not changing the set for you because you showed up late. We're going to be done in like 10 minutes. Yeah, she yeah. showed up during the last two songs. Yeah, they were very upset. So they're like, well, not upset. But they were very like, <laughs> we don't care. You don't have to go on this. They even crossed her name off the poster. Wow. That's a real thing. Wow. So that was actually the last time she ever tried to perform with the Velvet Underground. It wasn't really that she was necessarily a part of the band. But that was kind of the brush off that she realized that. I'm just not going to keep coming back to this anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, Nico was, she was supposed to, if you remember when she first came into the band, she was supposed to be the lead singer. That was the original plan. Yes, and then and she's she, like, hello, back band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then she got relegated to featured player. Sometimes. I, I, I guess is yeah. the way that you would describe yeah. it. She only had three songs, you know, and Lou barely let her have those. Um, she was on the outskirts. Like, it was yeah. just the Velvet Underground. It, that's the funny thing is that, like, at the time, like, it was just like, oh, yeah, that was something I did for a year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she just moved on and, you know, she had her solo career at that point. She had everything that she wanted. Uh, so it's funny that they didn't think at the time, like, oh, it's a big deal that Nico's leaving the band. She's like, okay, goodbye. No, she went to California. She hooked up with Brian Jones and then she hooked up with Jimi Hendrix, and mm. then uh, and then Jim Morrison, and then yeah, and then Jim Morrison. Unfortunately, all these people died around her <laughs> about this time, yeah. which is so weird. Yeah. So weird. Well, I, Morrison lasted a couple more years, not that much longer. <laughs> <laughs> now the gigs at the Boston Tea Party were arranged by a businessman named Steve Sesnick, and Sesnick would eventually do as much to destroy the Velvet Underground as Andy Warhol did to build them up. See, Sesnick was just a few months older than Lou Reed, but he gave off a decidedly older air. He was thick-set, he dressed conservatively, and he liked to smoke cigars, lending him an air of what Mo Tucker called false pomposity. And for some reason, when Steve Sesnick saw the Velvet Underground, he thought that this band would be bigger than the Beatles. Whoa. <laughs> wow, that is quite a dream. But while Lou Reed would be Steve Sesnick's John Lennon, Steve considered the rest of the Velvets 
to be no more than a bunch of Ringos. And who doesn't want a bunch of Ringos? <laughs> yeah, I got a, I'm, I got a bunch of Ringos for sale. I got a whole <laughs> litter of them. I'm trying to get rid of them. If no one picks them up in a week, they're free. <laughs> it's also around the time that Steve Sesnick comes into the picture that the original lineup from the debut album started falling apart, and that included original management. On the way home from a benefit show for a dance choreographer at a garden party in Connecticut where they'd shared the night with Republican Senator Jacob Javits. And John Cage. And John Cage. The Velvets had a conversation as to whether or not Andy Warhol was really the right guy to book gigs for a rock band. Yeah, I guess they were coming back and they're like, that was really fun, but the whole door slams, gongs, and radio show before <laughs> us. I mean, it's cool and stuff, but I don't know how rocking that is. It's a garden party in Connecticut. Jacob Javits is speaking. People- There's a co- The convention center in New York is now named after that guy, the Javits <laughs> Center. I just went to Comic-Con there on Saturday. It's not a cool thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> And since Steve Sesnick out in Boston had been trying to get the Velvets to take him on as a manager for months, the band decided that they needed a rock and roll guy if they wanted to be a rock and roll band. And thus, they sealed their own fate. How is he a rock and roll guy? <laughs> you just said he was a portly guy smoking cigars. That's the rock and roll guy behind the rock and roll band. You got That's the thing. The, back then, management did wear the suits. They did wear the tie. They did have that air like, yeah, kid, I'll think you'll go places. You'll go far with me. I like me. that. Sideburns. Yes, yeah. I like that. All right. Yes. Yeah. So it was very soon after that garden party with all the hors d'oeuvres on napkins <laughs> uh, that Lou and Andy had to sit down and have that dreaded, where is this going talk, <laughs> which they did. Yeah. So Andy told Lou, do you want to keep playing museums and art festivals? Because I can get those gigs for you unless you're looking to play at rock music venues. But the thing is, I'm not in that scene. So where do you want to go with this? And Lou thought, I want to be a rock and roll band now. Mm -hmm. So he told Andy he was firing him as his manager. And according to Lou, Andy was very upset by this. Like his face got all red and flustered. Mm -hmm. And and, and Andy called Lou a rat because that was the worst thing he could think of. You're a rat. You're a rat. (laughs) And Andy Warhol said it wasn't that dramatic. It really wasn't. Uh, He was very supportive of them. And he would always be, even though their band manager relationship was ending, they were still friends until the end. They really were. So Andy was happy to let them off their contract without any problems. And honestly, my guess is that Andy might have been a bit relieved not to have to pay for all those expenses all the time. Because even though Andy's a famous pop artist, he's not making much money. He's painting commissions for income, yes, just to keep things going, but he's also giving away old paintings to pay for the factory's, you know, bar tab at Max's. <laughs> he has to pay for like 20 people. He's like, hey, do you want this uh, Marilyn Monroe over here? <laughs> yes, that will take care of all the cheeseburgers all around. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. He seriously did that. And also, don't forget the the film and cameras that he would use for all his movies. That's very expensive. Yeah. And he's not making a lot of money off that at all. Actually, he didn't make it almost any money off anything (laughs) except for maybe Chelsea girls of course he made some money but the thing is again you know they think like he's being all great he's like a great filmmaker and everything they went to Cannes they didn't even screen the movie yeah the festival organizers refused to screen it for probably a lot of reasons (laughs) maybe because there's 10 seconds of male nudity yeah or or just too many reels and it's very complicated how to make it work and so the guys are like nope we're not screening this I don't even know who invited you isn't it 24 hours long? 
It's not. It's like six. (laughs) Okay, still, I mean. But I think sometimes they do two different reels at the same time just to speed up. You know, instead of watching all of it, you can watch half on one side. And so you could like, you could double up. Okay. Double up. Okay, yeah, yeah. Efficient. Watch this fucking. Two scenes at the same time. (laughs) Good. Efficiency. That's what I want with my movie going experience, especially my experimental movie experience. Just make it efficient. Okay, so point is, Andy wasn't as well off as some of them may have thought. At least not well off enough to take care of over a dozen people and have it not hurt. He's not like an enigma. He's just a guy who has to pay the water bill. Yeah. You know, much later, everything's going to be worth a ton more. Yes. Of course. And the other thing about Steve Sesnick is that um, the Velvets found a home in Boston. You know, they weren't, no one gave a shit in New York City, but in Boston fucking loved the Velvet Underground. They loved them. And of course, we'll get to Boston in our next series. Yes, I can't wait. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boston. Now, at first, <laughs> now at first, it seemed like Sesnick really was going to take the Velvets to the top. He counted Beatles manager Brian Epstein as a contact, and there was talk of the Velvets going on an Epstein-produced European tour, amongst other lucrative deals. Oh, no. <laughs> but, Nico, stay away. <laughs> but sadly... Brian Epstein accidentally overdosed on prescription barbiturates while the deal was being discussed. It was like within, honestly, within the next sentence you said that, he died. (laughs) Their only chance. Yeah, Dash, the biggest opportunity the Velvet Underground ever had. Yeah. Now, this was a frustrating point in the Velvet Underground's career. With the dissolution of their working relationship with Andy, the exit of Nico, and the tepid response to their debut, the Velvets had a fair amount of irritation to vent. This aura of maddening aggravation surrounding the band transformed itself into an album that John Cale called Rabid. Because while the debut had some lovely moments, the follow-up was consciously anti-beauty. What came as a result was white light, white heat. <laughs> yes, that means the amphetamine rush that makes your toes hot and you momentarily go blind and see a flash of white. Yeah, speed isn't cool, all right? <laughs> <laughs> You're not my dad. <laughs> it's just a good song. Just listen to the song and enjoy the song. Oh, my God. Don't do speed. Gosh. <laughs> Recorded in just three days, a year and a half after their debut, White Light, White Heat was completely produced by Tom Wilson. Although it's said that Tom spent more time chasing all the women around than he did actually producing. Well, it was the summer of love. <laughs> right? 
Tom Tom was a brilliant producer and, and he was all about creating a good atmosphere. That was one thing. He was always very cool mm-hmm. and everyone really enjoyed that. But maybe he just created too good of an atmosphere. Yeah. And at that time, I actually, I do think that the Velvet Underground, they were happy not to deal with a producer that was micromanaging every little aspect of their recording mm-hmm. until that is they heard the, the recording and realized oh we needed the professionals we needed experts <laughs> to tell us what we were doing is wrong but at that point they were just like unmovable they're yeah. like nope nope this is we know how to do this yeah and it's funny that you mentioned like this is during the summer of love this is during the summer of love think about what is actually happening in the music scene right now like how fucking lovey-dovey everything was how flowers in your hair all this shit was jefferson airplane white rabbit all that bullshit and in the middle of that (laughs) is white light white heat now this album is in a word difficult where their debut had some inkling of the 60s in its DNA, particularly in Sterling Morrison's guitar playing and in songs like There She Goes. There She Goes is a very 60s song. Yeah. White Light, White Heat was completely out of step with the times. Angry and aggressive. The dirty, cheap speed to the bird's good acid. Yeah, that means we have shitty stuff. <laughs> but the, the, yes, the album, the album really did reflect on how they were feeling about each other, about themselves. They felt like they were losers, like the debut album was failing, everything. And at this point, they were at each other's throats, like Lou Sterling and John Cale. Not Mo. No, she she knew she was smart enough to stay out of it and was like, there are too many crazy people in here. Yeah. Like one of us needs to let it go and be cool. <laughs> and that was Mo. <laughs> yeah. All right. And even with this constant bickering, they were obviously undeniably amazing when they played live. Yeah. Everyone said it. it's unanimous. They're just the best when they play live. They just needed to show that on record so they usually would record live as well. Mm-hmm. All of them together at once. Like, it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> And it is a brilliant idea for most bands. Yes. Most bands at this time recorded live. Yes. But remember, they're going to be fighting again because, well, who had the best take? Well, I sounded really good in this one. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know what? John Cale thinks he sounds great in the second take. So it's one of those like group picture things <laughs> where like, oh, Marcus is yawning. Yeah. Oh, I, my legs are uncrossed. <laughs> you know, things like that, which unfortunately happens too often. Yeah. All right. So each of them are obviously arguing for the one where they shine the brightest. So then finally, like, I think out of exasperation, someone finally said, that's it. When we record this next song, we're only going to do it once. This is one take only. So do whatever you want with it. It's half (laughs) improvised anyways. Just go nuts. And whatever happens, happens. So the band told the recording engineers, "Okay, we're ready. And they said, "Okay, who's playing bass? No one is. No one. No, no. John is playing the organ over here. And Sterling and Lou are on guitars. Mo's on drums. And they said, "Okay, what are you guys going to do? And they said, we're going to (laughs) start. And when it ends, it ends whenever that is. (laughs) This song is 17 minutes of distorted battling between Kale's electric organ and Sterling and Lou's guitars. And Reed, the whole time, is droning an abstract story about a drag queen drug orgy that ends in the murder of a sailor named Cecil. The story's very last exit to Brooklyn. And the song is, of course... The fucking wonderful Ding Dong (laughs) Sister Ray. Fucking Sally inside. They're cooking for the downfire. Who's standing at this way on? Who's busy licking up the big band? I'm searching for my main line. 
sit down and listen to the whole song it's one of those you had to be there <laughs> it's 17 and a half minutes long yeah you just kind of you just kind of have to sit down and like you know you gotta just get the full effect of the ding dong full effect yeah. that couldn't hit Light it sideways a yeah <laughs> couldn't hit it sideways you know you just gotta you gotta sit and you gotta absorb sister ray it's that sort of song you know and sister ray is a, it's a sister ray is one of those songs like not just albums but that song is extraordinarily important to like specifically the development of punk like the buzzcocks got together yeah. because of sister ray yes you know it's like that th- this song is just like it's it's a difficult listen especially the first time you listen to it but the more you listen to it the more it makes sense yes and even if you don't like it you should just be glad that it's there. Yeah, be glad it exists. Yeah. Now, one of the things you may have noticed in listening to these songs is that while they're great, they kind of sound like shit from a technical perspective. <laughs> I've been trying to tell you. <laughs> you can't just all do it together. <laughs> and the answer as to why they sound like that is one word long. Leakage. <laughs> Why do you have to do that? Why do you have to? You know, Leak. people are eating their meals. You know, people are trying to listen in peace. Leakage. Oh, God. <laughs> See, with White Light, White Heat, the Velvets ran into the same problem that the Stooges ran into years later with Raw Power. Pretty much the same problem. Very similar problem. Yeah. See, the Velvets could have recorded the entire album person by person, instrument by instrument, multi-tracking everything so they could properly mix it all together at the end. But as you mentioned earlier, they wanted the songs to sound like they did live. So they recorded everything live in the studio, but that wasn't really the problem. The problem was that they recorded everything extremely loud. That meant that one instrument leaked into what was being recorded next to it. And many of the songs, especially Sister Ray, suffered from a lot of white noise, a lot of distortion, and a lot of fuzz as a result. Yeah. In fact, the louder they played, the quieter it had to be mastered. And it- <laughs> There's a lesson learned. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. On one of the greatest albums. <laughs> and it still ended up sounding like a big muddy mess. They had to actually like turn down the gain on the fucking, on the stylus, on the record stylus. Like it was a fucking, I mean, it was a mess mess. Because no album had ever been recorded like this before. 
Now, a big part of the reason why the Velvets had that extreme fuzz was because in 1966, the Velvet Underground struck an endorsement deal with Vox, who still makes some of the fuzziest amps, pedals, and organs around. I own a Vox amp. I love my Vox amp. So, with all this Vox equipment, the Velvets took fuzz to a previously unreached level. It really, like, that's the, that's what you really have to keep in mind when you listen to White Light, White Heat. It sounds like it's in from the 70s. It's from 1967. It's fucking insane. It's crazy yeah. how far ahead of its time it was. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, for the songwriting on this album, Lou Reed reached back into his personal past for the second longest track on the record. For this one, he resurrected a short story from college and had John Cale use his Donovan-like voice for narration. Yeah, so Lou wrote this short story during his summer break while in college. <laughs> he missed his girlfriend, Shelly. So in one of the letters he wrote her, uh, he, he wrote this story about a boy named Waldo who also missed his girlfriend, but it was also wreaking havoc of paranoid thoughts of her going out and having sex with other men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like sex with boys, aren't you? Yeah. And he wanted to see her, <laughs> but he didn't have a lot of money. So Waldo decides to mail himself like in a cardboard box kind of thing with some air holes in it to his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And when Waldo's girlfriend gets the big parcel box that says it's from her boyfriend, Waldo, she gets excited and she grabs a big knife to open the box. But then she ends up plunging it straight into his head, killing him instantly. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's recorded where you can hear the narration on one side and the music on the other. It's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty cool. Like, like put on your ear pods or whatever crap you have. <laughs> and, and honestly, like listen on one side and then listen on the other ear. Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah, it, it, it's very, it's very, very cool. It's very urban legend. It's, pr it's pretty much what it is. Yes. It's an urban legend. Uh, but yeah, let's listen to some of it. I love this song. <laughs> Waldo Jeffers had reached his limit. It was now mid-August meant he had been separated from Marsha for more than two months. Two months and all he had to show were three dog-eared letters and two very expensive long-distance phone calls. True when school had ended and she'd returned to Wisconsin due to Locust, Pennsylvania, she had sworn to maintain a certain fidelity. She would date occasionally, but merely as amusement. She would remain faithful. But lately, Waldo had begun to worry. He had trouble sleeping at night. When he did, he had horrible dreams. He lay awake at night, tossing and turning beneath his secreted cloak protector, tears welling in his eyes as he pictured Marsha, her sworn vows overcome by liquor and the smooth soothings of some Neanderthal, 
finally submitting to the final caresses of sexual oblivion. It was more than the human mind could bear. Visions of Marsha's faithlessness haunted him. Daytime fantasies of sexual abandon permeated his thoughts. And the thing was, they wouldn't understand how she really was. He, Waldo, alone understood this. He had intuitively grasped every nook and cranny of the psyche. It made her smile. You know what's funny about the gift is the Velvet Underground were in the studio recording White Light, White Heat at the same time that Frank Zappa... You again! <laughs> the Mothers of Invention were recording their album and they had like a little bit of a moment where he's like, hey, yeah, you should uh, get a cassava melon and stab it at the end to get that sound. And then <laughs> as Frank Zappa's walking away, he turns back and he looks, he goes, hey, really like the album. See you later. <laughs> And then Lou looks at him again, and all of a sudden they're in a field somewhere. And he goes, hey, Frank, thanks. And he hands him a Coke. (laughs) But the frustration that the Velvets brought into the studio was only made worse by the continuation of Lou Reed's dirty tricks. For the song I Heard Her Call My Name, Reed snuck into the studio and remixed the track to make himself more prominent, completely undermining the rest of the band and especially undermining John Cale. And while the relationship of the Velvet Underground's co-founders, of course, Lou Reed and John Cale, while that might have survived, while their relationship might have survived these kinds of childish antics, they couldn't weather manager Steve Sesnick constantly blowing smoke up Lou Reed's ass. Where the relationship between Lou and John Cale was pretty equal before Steve Sesnick, Lou was referring to the Velvet Underground as, quote-unquote, his band after Sesnick signed on as manager. And suddenly, now that Sesnick was on the scene, if you wanted to talk to Lou, you had to go through Sesnick to do it. Ooh, yeah, he's putting someone between them. Oh, yeah. See, the original idea of the Velvet Underground was that John Cale would create an orchestral chaos while Lou would spontaneously create lyrics. But with Sesnick whispering in his ear, Lou began yearning more for a group that would make Lou Reed a star. But that desire would in no way, shape, or form be realized with the maddening distortion of white light, white heat. And without the backing of Andy Warhol outside of the idea for the album cover, their second record fell even flatter than the first one. It sold less than the first one. So much less. Barely cracked the top 200. Yes. For a week. Well, yes, it actually uh, entered at 200. (laughs) And then the next week it was at 199. Woohoo. Okay, two weeks. And then it disappeared forever. <laughs> and that was it. But then again, it's not about the charts, right? No, it's, no. it's about the people. Let's see what the people are saying. Let's see what the critics are saying. Oh, it's not good either. Okay. <laughs> oh, they called me, they called it a tasteless pour. Oh, oh. God. Okay. But there are a couple of good reviews. There are yeah. some people who truly get it. So you yeah. can't throw them all out. And also everyone in the group, uh, they all mentioned that the record company didn't do anything to promote them at all, which actually is not true. They did promote the album, like taking a full page ad on Rolling Stone and, and another teen magazine. Uh, they also had a few radio ads. It's just that the thing is that the radio stations, they played the ads, yeah. but not the songs. Yeah. And Rolling Stone didn't even review their album. Yeah. So they were like, we'll just take your money. <laughs> <this point." laughs> so it seemed like nobody cared. And if they did... They were usually upset by the drug and sex references, mm-hmm. like this one, where it might be about a woman reaching orgasm. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Or it could be a drug come down. Or it's about Lou's guitar. You get to decide. Yeah. Here she comes now. <laughs> <laughs> if she ever comes now, now. If she ever comes now, now. If she ever comes now, now. If 
quote in an interview where uh, he's like yeah they said it's about a girl coming mm-hmm. and and Lou said well it's not it's about someone coming into the room <laughs> and then I listened to the record and I realized it was probably about a girl coming as, as a matter of fact but then again so what so what who cares who yeah. cares but we were banned yeah <laughs> that's Lou's <laughs> I, I, I like the way he just kind of summarizes everything in two seconds. Yeah, I love it, too. And, and you know, he made some good points about his lyrics. You know, he, he said that he was writing lyrics from a certain he was writing lyrics for a certain person, you know, like, and that's what we talk about in the beginning of this series. You know, that this is music that is for somebody. Mm-hmm. And what Lou Reese says is that he was writing lyrics for the kids in the back row. You know, the, the the fuck ups, you know, the weirdos. That's who he was writing music. And that's who eventually found that music. Uh, but at the time when this album came out, like it was very difficult to find that music. Very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of the people that did find it, David Bowie. But we'll talk more yeah. about that next episode. Next episode. Yes. Now, the Velvet Underground went right back into the studio after the release of their second album. But the days of John Cale's orchestrated chaos were coming to an end. Instead of the challenging, chaotic intensity of the previous album, the songs recorded in this session, after the release of White Light, White Heat, were more melodic. They were more pop-friendly. In other words, under Steve Sesnick's management, the Velvets were becoming more accessible. For example, during this session, the Velvets recorded an absolutely lovely song called Stephanie Says, which was the first of Lou Reed's long-running She Says series. Caroline says so on and so forth. Let's listen to it. Stephanie says That she wants to know Why she's given half her life To people she hates now Stephanie says Stephanie says, when answering the phone, answering the phone, what country shall I say is calling from across the world? But she's not afraid to die. The people all call her Alaska. Between worlds, so the people ask. 
ask her Cause it's all in her mind It's all in her mind Beautiful song. It is. Gorgeous. It is. really is. But pulling on the other side, musically, was John Cale, who, in a later session, contributed the much stranger and honestly much cooler Hey Mr. Rain. Tragically, this session would be the last time the original instrumental lineup would record in the studio together. Very different songs. Mm-hmm. Of course, neither one of those songs were heard until the mid-80s, when each were released on separate Velvet Underground compilations. And nobody really knows why these songs weren't released until then. And especially no one really knows why Stephanie Says wasn't just on the third Velvet Underground album. It would have fit. Most likely, though, it's because Lou Reed didn't want any songs that had to do with John Cale on the next record. Because mm-hmm. John Cale's time in the Velvet Underground was growing short. Now, the two principal songwriters of the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed and John Cale, they were obviously going in two entirely different directions. And the divide grew even larger when John Cale married fashion designer Betsy Johnson. Yeah, so Betsy and John, they met a year before in 1967 when Betsy was running her paraphernalia clothing shop. She offered to make clothes for the Velvet Underground. And so they all got some really great Betsy Johnson clothes. Mm-hmm. It's great. I love her stuff. Yeah, super cool. Yes. And including Lou. She got she made Lou a whole suit, even though he immediately did not like her. <laughs> like they they were at odds with each other from the beginning. Yeah. But she still made him a really nice suit, except that Betsy didn't really know at that time how to cut like crotches in the pants well enough. <laughs> okay. So Lou ended up on stage with a giant sagging piece of material that he wasn't able to fill, <laughs> you know, which probably soured Lou on Betsy even more. Uh-huh. And it's all because Lou just felt betrayed, like a girl getting between two best friends. And now this young, ambitious woman who's totally independent, she's becoming very successful and she's pulling John Cale away. He's hanging out with her friends, making connections with her people, all while Betsy's telling John how great he is and how maybe he he should be writing his own songs and how he can be a star too. I mean, she's been a very supportive wife. And Lou's sitting there with an empty bulge in his pants, <laughs> just glaring at her like 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 devil called Prada. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know my girl move. Uh, the, 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 ooh, that is the devil called Prada. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks, mom. Oh, it's, what's that movie? The devil called okay, Prada. Okay, yeah, the, I the think devil it's the, de- wears Prada. Okay. the devil wears Prada. <laughs> Damn it. The, the devil picked up a phone. <laughs> I mean, the way Lou Reed looked at it and the way he told John Cale is that, you know, it's he kind of looked at it like if you're in a band, it's kind of like being a sailor. Like you're married to the sea. And that's what he yeah. told John Cale. Like you're married, you're married to the band. You're married to the Velvet Underground. Yeah. You can't marry Betsy. And there's also some people who say that Lou Reed was somewhat sexually jealous of Betsy, just a little bit, and that he had kind of a thing for John Cale. Ooh, and that's a bit. I mean, I know it's a bit rumory. Yeah, it's, it's, a bit it's, rumory. it's a bit rumory. I, I, I do know it's a speculation, yeah. though. I, I'm allowed to get a little gossipy here and there. Did you know he had a thing for him? Did you know that? <laughs> I mean, I, you didn't hear it from me, but you know. John Cale was like, yeah, Lou kind of insinuated something at first, and I kind of like rebuffed that, and then that was the end of that. But yeah. you never know. <laughs> and- I, I just think like sometimes, like from what we were talking about, episode one with Lou Reed, it just seems like he really appreciates. He appreciated. He was so grateful for having control over all these people. Around him. No, he just he was really into uh, just gaining control. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was made to be a solo artist, basically. Yeah. And that's the thing is that Lurie's animosity for John Cale was reaching such a point that it got to be where he could scarcely talk about anything else. During his first date with his future wife, Reed reportedly spent the entire night drinking scotch and raving about John Cale, <laughs> rambling on and on about how nobody was listening to him because I'm the band leader. I am. What's up John. with those rhinestones? <laughs> really? It looks look stupid. It looks dumb. And in turn, Cale was getting highly irritated with Lou. Cale said that Lou wanted soft songs, but Cale wanted something big and grand. And when Lou said he wanted pretty songs, Cale said, fine, let's make them grand and pretty songs then. But right in the middle of all this fighting between John Cale and Lou Reed, a tragedy occurred that one might think would bring them together, but Lou Reed predictably made it all about himself. On June 3, 1968, Andy Warhol was shot at the factory. Yeah, the new factory, actually. Andy and the rest of his crew had moved to a new space further downtown on Union Square. And that place was a little less party good times and a little more professional, more work-oriented. But people always dropped by still, like, to visit and and to propose business opportunities to Andy and company. Because Andy was getting offers for all kinds of things. Yeah. Like, this one in particular was a script for a play called Up Your Ass. (laughs) Which I like the title, Mm -hmm. which was written by a 30 year old radical feminist named Valerie Solanas. She had given Andy a copy of the script two years earlier. And, you know, she was just kind of hanging around once in a while Mm -hmm. at the the factory. Her and Andy would chat and so on and so forth. Yes, that's right. And then she would sometimes go into her insane extremist views, Uh, making sure she told everyone how she felt about everything. Kind of that kind of person. A character. Yeah. Well, (laughs) she becomes a monster. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like her involvement in SCUM, Society for Cutting Up Men or AKA Scum. Scum, got it. Which she was the sole founder and <laughs> member of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think if you're the only person, I don't know if you would say involvement in. I think it's just more your hobby. No, she actually talks. I'm involved in this. Okay. <laughs> 
it's just me. Yeah. It, it's just her. Yeah. Actually, it's just her. It's just yeah. her. And her manifesto detailed how men are the basis for all that is evil in society and must be eliminated. Mm. That men are actually incomplete females and their genetic deficiency causes them to lack empathy or care about anything other than themselves. Huh. And Andy's like, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> he didn't argue with her about anything, yeah. but he kind of dismissed her and, and forgot about the script. And so when she asked for her script back later, he told her he couldn't find it. He must have lost it. Sorry. Yeah. Valerie didn't take it well. And over a period of months, she got more and more paranoid and started to make herself believe that Andy lied about losing the script and that he was planning on taking away her intellectual property and mm. ruining her life. I see. So on Monday, June 3rd, at about 4.15 in the afternoon, Valerie Solanas ran into Andy Warhol right outside of the factory building. She greeted him, and together they walked into the building. Earlier that day, she had told someone... I am going to shoot Andy Warhol, and that will make me famous, and that will make my play famous. Jesus. Once upstairs and near several of Andy's friends and associates, Valerie shot at Andy with a 32 caliber gun. When the first bullet hit Andy, he dropped to the ground and tried to crawl under a desk. So she pointed the gun back at him again and shot at him a couple more times. Then she turned her attention to Mario Amaya, an associate of Andy's, and shot him in the hip. The shooter then called an elevator and pointed the gun at another guy, Andy's business manager, Fred, but the gun jammed. And when she reached in her paper bag to get her other gun, the elevator doors opened and she escaped. Later that day, she turned herself into police saying she hoped Andy Warhol was dead. Jesus Christ. And Andy Warhol said the shooting hurt so much he wished he was dead. <laughs> and before falling unconscious, he told Billy Name, who was cradling Andy in his arms and sobbing while they're waiting for an ambulance to stop it. Stop it. You're making me laugh. It hurts to laugh. And Billy's like, I'm crying. He's like, I thought you were laughing. And then I was laughing. And we're all laughing. And oh, God. <laughs> but, but it wasn't funny. No, it, it was a very serious injury. Yeah. Actually, two bullets had gone through both of Andy's lungs, his stomach, his spleen, and esophagus. He had already been pronounced dead at the hospital, but was luckily resuscitated and survived the surgery. He spent 18 days in intensive care and a full eight weeks in a hospital. He had a 50% chance of survival. Jesus. Yeah. And so the shooter. I know I'm just saying Jesus over and over again, but this is fucking insane. He's not here, man. (laughs) (laughs) I know. The shooter was sentenced to three years in prison and continued to. This is a shooter, like an armed shooter. No, this is an an attempted murderer who tried killing three people. Exactly. And continued to stalk Andy. After she was released, until she was finally arrested again and institutionalized several times throughout the years, she died in 1988. Good. Well, now, back in 1968, the Velvet Underground, they were on tour in Los Angeles when this happened. And the hotel they were staying at had, uh, you know, they put out the morning papers in the lobby where they learned about the shooting of pop artist Andy Warhol. Mm Mm-hmm. So they were all obviously very scared and they all called him. They all went to visit him, of course. Uh, Lou was also scared for his friend, but he didn't visit Andy in the hospital and he was slow to call. Andy even asked Lou, like, why didn't you come? Where were you? Yeah. And well, the thing is that Lou had a hard time because he, this is so awful. He also knew Valerie Solanas. <laughs> He had met her once or twice at Max's or the factory or something, you know, when they were all hanging out one night or something. scene thing. Yeah. And on one of those nights when she went off on her anti-men diatribe, he stopped her and Lou being Lou told her, well, I think women are inferior. (laughs) (laughs) 
not as intelligent. Don't get me wrong. And they're not as competent as men. As men, they are not as competent. But really, if you study it and you look at the facts, it's true. But, you know, you couldn't understand it. <laughs> Women know things. And just egging her on. Yeah, just and making she, it worse and more, just making her more and more angry. And yeah. she's like, I hope you die. <laughs> With, like, fire in her eyes. And so when this all happened, he found out who did the shooting. He was, yes, he made it about himself because he thought, he was going to be hunted next. Yeah. And even though she was at this point in a psychiatric hospital because she was deemed, this is ironic enough, incompetent <laughs> at trial, <laughs> he was still too afraid to go. Yeah. And, and that was just another thing that Lou just just didn't confront right away. You know, right away, even though they did stay friends, no matter what. And Andy forgave him. They did. I mean, yeah. I mean, even though they weren't around and doing working with him, like Lou Reed stayed friends with Andy. John Cale stayed friends with Andy. Remember, John Cale brought the Stooges to the factory. Yeah. Like the next year. So they're they're still a part of the scene. It's not a big deal, man. Yeah. (laughs) So a couple of months after all the hubbub of Andy's attempted assassination died down. Lou Reed made a decision that would change the shape of the Velvet Underground for years to come. Now, the reasons behind this decision have never been explicitly said, but it's fairly obvious that Lou Reed wanted to take the band in a more commercial direction, while John Cale wanted to record the next album with their amplifiers underwater. But first they go on boats. (laughs) We put them on boats, all of them, and then we're going to shoot an arrow into the air. (laughs) Furthermore, Steve Sesnick had been fomenting dissent between Cale and Reed for months, garbling messages to encourage miscommunication, all so he could get the weird Welsh guy kicked out of the band. And unfortunately, his plan worked. Yeah, Lou asked Mo and Sterling to meet him at a restaurant to talk about the band. So he sat them down and he simply told them, John is out of the band starting today. If you don't like it, then I'm breaking up the Velvet Underground. And Mo and Sterling did not like this no. one bit. No, they hated this. They were angry. They were friends with John. Sterling was his roommate mm-hmm. at this time and for a while, too. And they liked working with John. He was doing a great job. Maybe too good of a job. Maybe. Yes. So against their better judgment, Sterling and Moe decided to continue the band without John. And to make matters worse, Lou gave Sterling the task of telling John that he was out of the band. Fucking coward. Lou didn't even confront him or or give him a a specific reason. He was just out. Yeah. And John obviously was crushed. He he felt that they had met almost, almost as fate. You know, they had found a near-perfect collaboration in rock music and the avant-garde. John said, we never really fulfilled our potential. Drugs and the fact that no one gave a damn about us meant we gave up on it too soon. Yeah. To which Lou would admit in an interview 20 years later, I think he's right in a way. You <laughs> fucking asshole. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's oh, right. Oh, yeah. You know what? Now that I think about it, yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't have crushed his dream. <laughs> And you know what? We wouldn't have gotten all the great John Cale producing stuff. We really wouldn't. I mean, he would. John Cale, the next year, uh, produced the Stooges' debut album. Like, he did fine. Yeah, he did. No, no, John Cale was fine. <laughs> he did okay. And, you know, and there is a question as to whether or not it would have been better for John Cale to stay in the band. You know, it, it, because, because if John Cale would have stayed in the band, we wouldn't have got loaded. And that's where we'll pick back up. Final part of the Velvet Underground. Woo-hoo! Of course, we'll pick back up with the third album first. But yeah, next, there, next episode, albums. last episode, we're talking about fucking Loaded. 
Oh, I'm so excited. There's a couple books I use for this one. Uh, Popism, the Warhol 60s by Andy Warhol. I'm sure he wrote that himself. He put pen to paper on that one. Uh, and Uptight, the Velvet Underground Story by Victor Bacris, mm-hmm. again. And uh, also there's this great website if you want to read everything you can about Tom Wilson, the, the great music producer, uh, producertomwilson.com. Uh, that it was put together by Irvin Chusid, uh, radio DJ, record producer, music journalist, music historian. It's great. It's all very comprehensive. And, and if you want to check out more of what Tom Wilson, like what his legacy was, mm-hmm. uh, definitely check that out. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, if you don't want to wait a week to hear Velvet Underground Part 5, it is now available on our Patreon yes. page, patreon.com slash no dogs. Uh, you can go and for the highest tier, you can uh, get early access uh, for every episode. You get it as soon as we're done with it. And if you go with the highest level, you also get a biweekly music show called New Arrivals that comes out every other Thursday or Friday. One of the two. We'll figure it out. We're still ironing things <laughs> out, really. Yeah, we're still ironing out the details. And of course, for the lowest level, you get notifications when new series begin because the way that we're going to be doing it from now on is that when a series happens you get episodes every single week and then there's going to be a period of you know three to four weeks maybe five uh while we get the next series going so that way you don't have to wait for more episodes and we don't kill ourselves putting them out you get better shit you I'm get better get, shit. You just get better episodes overall. And we're happier. Don't you want us to be happy? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> and we got new t-shirt for sale. Yeah. New t-shirts. They're really great. They're fantastic. Uh, check that out at lastpodcastmerch.com mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And our Instagram as no dogs pod if you want to go and, you know, slip DMs or whatever. Say, you know, something nice or a snarky comment, whatever. Whatever yeah. you want to do. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I would prefer something nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A, a, a snarky nice thing. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and, and a Spotify playlist. Please check out our playlist for this episode. Yeah, every single episode we have a playlist that goes along with it so you can hear all of the music that we played today in full. Uh, Just search uh, my name, Marcus Parks, on Spotify and you can find all of those playlists or search No Dogs Playlist, No Dogs in Space Playlist. They all come up. They're easy to find. Yeah. Uh, And if you have a band that you want to let us know about, Send an email to nodogsinspace at gmail.com. And the cool thing about the bands, if you're a longtime listener, you know, every single week we play, you know, a band at the end of the show. The cool thing about doing the Beastie Boys series is that the type of music that we're now getting has expanded so much. And this week we got actual real fucking awesome hip-hop yes like very very cool Love stuff it. It, it, this is so fucking cool we got uh an email from the producer of this track a guy that goes by the name caliph now uh the track is by an artist named reef the lost cause it's called naked uh there is a video uh on uh youtube that you can check out it's so fucking cool this song is Amazing. Uh, check out all this guy's stuff. You can check out uh, Reef the Lost Cause at Reef the Lost Cause. That's cause with a Z. Dot bandcamp.com. And for uh, Caliph Now's other stuff, uh, you can check out Caliph Now. That's C A L I P H N O W. Dot bandcamp. Dot com. Uh, check out this song. It's fucking great. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for uh, sending in music. We're getting through it as much as we can. It's a lot. Yes. Uh, but yes, thank, you, thank you so much. Thousands yeah. of emails. Thousands. So thank you all so much for sending in music. Keep sending it in. And thanks so much to everyone for the kind words uh, about season one and about uh, the Beastie Boys season. Thank you. Y'all are fucking, re- y'all are really great. Yeah. And thanks so much for the kind words about uh, the season so far. Um, y'all are 
really great. Yeah, it's really humbling. Thank you so much. Every everyone's awesome. Whatever you want to do, ad free shows. They're all free. <laughs> I hope this is evergreen. Yeah, <laughs> all yeah. right, cool. Yay! Yay! Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Check out this song. Goodbye. So sold for less than silver The allure of money, fame, and fat asses It sent many good men down a path of madness The sadness that you feel when you're just average Will make you do things that are classless To feel attractive on Instagram Beautiful girl with her titties out Showing flesh is sad That's not what she's really about No judgment, but I really can't explain the Mind state of needing attention from total strangers But that's the world we live in Wealth in an instant If we gotta work for it, man, we ain't trying to hear it but what about the spirit the soul that we carry in the end that's all we have when these old bones are buried when you go to meet god and he asks about your life he ain't gonna give a fuck about your followers or likes get it right simple when we wore robes and sat silently in temples when we lived a life of principle and honor when we chose to promote knowledge instead of drama watch what you eat because everything is poison now you want proof look at that monster with the orange crown because people believed someone on tv could run the free world because that's all you need fame that drug worse than cocaine because once you get a taste you can't flush that down the drain oh no it's stained your heart and your brain i believe we can change but first you must abstain from thinking that any of this will bring you happiness i know mad famous people some of them niggas sad as shit all the money in the world all the cars in the holes ain't gonna fix the gaping hole in your soul when you go just know Price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.